You're listening to the preaching podcast from Regency Baptist Church, located in Loomis, California, in the greater Sacramento region. We pray that you'll be blessed by this Bible-based message. And it's also our desire that you'll be helped with this message in your personal walk with Jesus and strengthened in your commitment to serve Him daily. Let's take our Bibles tonight to Zechariah chapter 9. This is the final, this is the last, this is the end of our study on the Minor Prophets. And I hope that it's been a blessing to you as we've gone over this. Uh, Minor Prophets, but Major Truths. Many of these books that we've studied over the last several weeks have been very brief. This one we'll look at tonight is the only one we've taken two different uh, times to study just due, due to, the, to the amount of chapters and the uh, content that's written in Zechariah. Uh, but mo- many times these books are often overlooked in the Word of God. And can I just challenge you, dear people, to never overlook Scripture If there's something that you don't understand in the Bible, if there's something maybe you're unfamiliar with in the Bible or haven't studied in the Bible, that shouldn't cause us to be fearful to study or fearful to read or maybe even intimidated to say, I can never understand. But to be hungry to say, I want to learn and I want to grow. I want to know everything that God has given to us. And and I hope that there's been a, hopefully a hunger that's been satisfied in you over the last couple of weeks as we've gone through this to say I, I didn't know a lot about maybe some of these books and now just understanding a little bit more and Lord willing in your personal time, understanding even more so. Uh, but, but I know that I've enjoyed it and there's always something a little bit uh, sad when we get to the end of a study, whether it's a book of the Bible or a study in the scripture and I've enjoyed this very much. But we're going to be in Zechariah chapter number nine tonight, verse number nine. We'll just read this short passage, and then we're going to go through this second half of the book as we finish this series. If you'll stand, please, for the reading of the scripture tonight, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass. And upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Our Father, as we come to you tonight, I pray that, first and foremost, that God, every time we open the Word of God, that Jesus is lifted up. God, we understand that in every study of the Word of God, the purpose of it is to remind us and to point us to Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would not get sidetracked, whether it's a study on the past history of your people, on the future of what is to come, or even on the current climate of what's taking place in America, in California, and in the world today. God, that that would be a distraction, that there is a King above all. And that there is a Savior of the world that has a purpose and a heart for all people. Lord, help us to remember Christ as we study your word. Help us, Lord, I pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Zechariah, we've entitled him this way, that he is the revealing prophet. The revealing prophet. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Now, we we talked about this a little bit last week, and we're not going to go through all of what we went through last week, but just by way of review, 
Zechariah is, it's a very unique book of the Bible because of the, the vivid pictures and imagery through the dreams of Zechariah that he had. He, he, he was a dreamer. He woke up and said, Lord, what did that mean? Kind of like Pharaoh back in the Old Testament. He had a dream and it scared him. I don't know if you've ever had a dream before that you maybe woke up and thought, did that mean something, God? Were you trying to tell me something? You know, we're always looking for signs from the Lord, are we not? God, are you trying to speak to me? What did that mean? Why did you bring that to pass? God, God, what are you trying to do? And God revealed some three things through Zechariah. Zechariah is very exciting in the Bible because that this book covers so much of the timeline of Christ from the, 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 the time of exile to the coming of Jesus when he first came. We're going to read about, and we just read about, one of the greatest fulfillment of prophecies in all of the Bible, all the way to the future coming of the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign and the kingdom of God that is to come. And so there's so much that this book encompasses, and I pray that it's a help to you as we go through this together. We, we need to remember that this book has the similar theme that really every other book of the Bible has, and that is the focus and emphasis and underlining of Jesus Christ. And there's many descriptions of that. We'll go through to look at them all that we did last week. But number one, we talked about their summary of their present dilemma. And in chapter one, he calls the people to turn and to repent. He reminded them that they were in the place that they were because of the sins of their fathers of the past. We are wise to remember the ways that we've erred in the past to say, if anything, let's not do that again. Let's turn to a different way. And so there's a challenge right from the start, a call to remembrance to turn back to God. And really the, the bulk of the middle part of Zechariah, we see number two, the symmetry of the prophet's dreams. And there's eight, really nine visions or dreams that Zechariah had. And we could go through, I'm not going to go through, but if you charted these, they pair together one and eight, two and seven, three and six, four and five, and then a final one. All of this picturing how God is dealing with his people. And we will go through all of that together. But as we kind of pick up where we left off, we're going to be in Zechariah chapter number seven. And so if you'll turn back just a couple of chapters, and we'll pick up where we left off there. There's 14 chapters in the book, and so we're a little bit before the halfway point. But Zechariah is really in three different sections. Zechariah came upon the scene. He's a contemporary of Haggai the prophet. Haggai was the prophet that came to the people to say, let's keep on building the temple, and let's do and finish what we started. That was the time where God's people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city, and to rebuild the walls, and to rebuild the temple. That was pretty important. And by the way, that was a pretty exciting time to be a part of Israel's history. They'd been in captivity for several years. They were heartbroken that Assyria and Babylon had overtaken them. They probably thought, we'll never be a nation again. Maybe they had lost hope and said, we've been wiped off the map. We're just going to be the brunt of every war for the end of all time. And God gave a space of grace through Nehemiah and several other groups that were able to go back and work on the temple and the walls of God's people. Zechariah comes about that timeline with Israel's history. Haggai was an older prophet. Zechariah was a younger man. And the first part of this book 
is Zechariah as a younger man, a younger preacher. Then you get to chapter 7, and this is about two years later, after the dreams and after the challenge. And so this is where we're going to pick up where we left off from before. Number three, we see the solution to their pained desires. The solution to their pained desires. The problem with the people of God at this time is that they were able to go back, but just like many of us, they started a work, but didn't finish it. Let me confess to you, I don't know how it is at your house, but I've gotten a lot of projects going on that started really well that are just a little bit unfinished. There's a lot of things I could point to you if you came to our house with whether it's painting or fixing or repairing or working on something and man started that job and started working on it and a part of it is that those jobs never end, do they? The list never finished and it never gets to the point where there's nothing else to do. We can just sit by the fire and drink coffee and watch TV and, and do nothing. There's always something to do. The people of God went back and they started the work of the temple, but then we read in Haggai, they got distracted building their own houses. They got discouraged from the enemy that was there. So they started and it was exciting, but then they hesitated. And Zechariah comes with Haggai as well to say, hey, let's, let's finish what we started. Let's set out not just to do something for God, but to finish until Jesus comes back again. Can I say tonight that I'm thankful for everyone that's here tonight. And I'm thankful for all of you that say we are striving to follow God and be committed to Him in our families and in our lives today. And that's wonderful and that's great. But it doesn't mean a whole lot if we quit just a year down the road. If we don't finish, like Paul says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Praise the Lord if you're serving God today. But where are you going to be at the finish line? Are you going to finish what you started and set out to do for the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm sure we could survey a lot of people in America and a lot of people around the world that used to go to church and used to read their Bibles. They used to pray. They used to go soul winning. And it's a bunch of used to Christians. And the people of God here, we, we used to work on the temple and we used to be excited to come back and we used to have hope in the Lord, but something changed in their heart and they didn't finish what they started. In chapter 7, they ask a question. There's a lot that we could dive into to study this and we're just going to kind of survey this thought, but we see the cry of the people in verse number 3. They asked a question and said this, And to speak unto the priests, which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself, as I have done these so many years? So they're asking a question dealing with their, uh, with their fasting and with their mourning, with the direction of how they were to operate as a people. It's very interesting how God replies to them, and Jesus does this a lot in the Gospels. If you read Christ as he talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the people throughout the New Testament, how did he respond many times when they asked him a question? He responded with a question. In other words, he didn't get defensive. It wasn't Jesus just saying, well, I'm just going to answer your question and that's it. He responded with a question saying, let me give you now something to think about. And that's exactly what God does in this passage as well. That there are people that were hanging on a limb. They, they had come back to a ruined city Remember, the old people cried because the temple wasn't what it used to be. 
And the young people rejoiced because they saw God work in a great way in their time, and they weren't exactly sure how to feel. They weren't sure how to operate. They weren't sure, how, how do we keep the fast? How do, we, how do we mourn? How do we do this? How do we do that? And can I say this, if we're not careful, we can fall into this same trap. And this is what I mean by that. Their fasts were more concerned with the program than with the person. In other words, they were more concerned about their routines, about their traditions, about their rituals, than the person that they were doing it for. Their cry was, well, well, how are we supposed to do this? And have we been doing it the right way? And is this supposed to stop? And have things changed now? How is this supposed to happen? And I don't think they were wrong to say, Lord, how should we operate? But in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, we find God respond to His people, and He knew their hearts. Can I tell you, dear people today, that God knows you exactly for who you are? You can fool the preacher. You could probably fool your spouse. You can fool the people around you, but you cannot fool the Lord. You can't fool the Lord. He sees through every facade of a Christian who comes to church, holds a hymn, opens their Bible, and tries to act religious, but inside, there's no walk with God. And I appreciate people in the Christian life that are real. I appreciate people that are genuine. In other words, we find in the New Testament that Jesus often condemned not the sinners, but the Pharisees. He said, you're doing more harm to the work of God than anybody else because you're turning it to be something that it was not intended to be. You have it all pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're empty. Why did sepulchers? And we get into church, and can I tell you, we, we can learn the routines, can't we? We can learn how to act the part. We can learn to put on a smile for a few minutes. We can hold our songbook and sing the hymns that we've sung probably a hundred times. But God can see right through any facade. God can see when there's hypocrisy in our hearts. I pray that we take this to heart and understand that we need genuine Christians in our society. We need people who are real. You know what that means? That means you need to get a real walk with God. It doesn't mean, let me just showcase my sin. It means, if I'm going to act like a Christian, then I need to be genuine in my heart and have a heart for God, not just to do the things that Christians are supposed to do, but to do it for the right person. In chapter 8, if you look at the beginning of this with me, the Bible says again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I was jealous for her with great fury. That's not a part of God that we talk a lot about in our culture. That's not a part about God that a lot of modern contemporary Christianity likes to think about with the God that we serve. But he said this, you've turned away from me and I am jealous over you. In other words, I want you back because you're my people. And you're my children. And I don't want you acting that way. And I don't want you looking that way. Can you imagine, we just got back from a sports tournament, if one of our young people at the championship game, our boys played in the championship, they played their hearts out, they played well, it was an exciting game to cheer for. Can you imagine if one of our bench players that was cheering for the guys grabbed one of the warm-up shirts of the other team, put it on, and started cheering? We would say, hey, what are you doing? Take, take that, take that warm-up shirt off. You don't play for them, you play for us. 
you play for our team. Uh, Brother Davis's mom was kind of torn through a lot of the games because she is there at Riverview, but also has a lot of alliances with our family and, and uh, of course, the Davis family and whatnot. And uh, so she had a red sweater and an orange sweater. And there was a little bit of, go Broncos and, and go Razorbacks. And God says, hey, you're, you're on my team. And you belong to me. And there's a certain way that I want you to live, but, but not just to the fasts and the rituals and the traditions and to the mornings, but to the person that you're doing it for. He reminded them of God's jealousy towards them. He reminded them of God's desire to restore His people. This is interesting to me. If you look at chapter number 8, um, you, could, you could read through this and study it on, on your own. I, I would challenge you to. But he says there in verse number 5, he talks about the restoration. Verse 3, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. He says, I want to dwell with you. I want to be close to you. I want to be like the people in the wilderness, the, 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 the cloud by day and the fire by night. I want that relationship restored. That, that's the God that we serve, amen? And in verse number 5, he speaks this a lot with future restoration and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Now that's very relevant to our culture, is it not? We know a lot what it means to have kids just playing in the streets. That, that's a sign of peace. It's a sign of joy. I was thinking as I was reading this back to when we went on our mission trip in Mexico. And we had a few Bible clubs that we were a part of with the church there. And it was greatly used. We had a lot of people come, but it was very different than the Bible clubs that we've had. We're, we're about ready to have some Bible clubs coming up with preparations for Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And for the most part, it's, it's unusual if parents come to the Bible clubs. We might have a couple, we might have a handful, but last year, I think before Easter, we had, we had over 100 kids at that Bible club we maybe, maybe had five to ten parents, maybe a dozen at the most. There was just a couple, just a handful. When we were doing the Bible clubs in Mexico, it was full of parents. And those of you teenagers who, was there, who were there might remember this. There were kids there, but all the parents were there. And a part of that was, the missionary said, in, in this area, parents don't let kids out of their sight. Because they don't trust their kids. They don't trust the area with their kids. If you went into a big city, if we went to San Francisco, if you went to Los Angeles, you'd probably do the same. You wouldn't tell your five-year-old, hey, would you just walk down the street and go pick up a coffee or pick up a gallon of milk? I mean, even here in what we consider to be a pretty safe area in Loomis and in Placer County, there's still that reservation. And so God is giving this picture here to say this, it's a place that will have peace. It's a place that there will be blessing. There will be prosperity. God says, that's what I have planned for you. He reminded them of their days of blessing in the past. He reminded them to encourage them not to do the same errors, to continue in building the temple for the right motives. And if you look with me in verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. He says, you're asking questions about routine, and you're asking about tradition. You're asking about the law. Was that wrong for them to ask? Well, of course not. 
Maybe a part of them was sincere, but God says, I see through you, and you know what I really want? If you want to know what I really want, it's for you not just to do the things, but to be a good people as well. He talks about doing good to your neighbor and executing the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. In other words, don't just do it to do the right things, but do it to be good people and obey the word of God. Can I just remind us, Regency Baptist Church, that the things that we hold to mean nothing if we don't do them for the right reasons. There are things that we do in our church that absolutely are not biblical doctrine conviction, but they're more tradition. Dressing up for church is one of those things. You go to different cultures, and there's a little bit of a different style on what a Sunday morning is if you're in different parts of the world. That is a little bit different than here. But in our tradition, in our culture, I like the fact that we, we, we dress up, and at least so some of us you know, still do in our day and age, and at Regency Baptist, I'm not talking about a midweek service, but on Sundays. But can I say this, that we should not dress up for church to make ourselves feel better, but to say, you know what, well, why do we do this? Because we want to be respectable to God's house. We, we believe that God deserves our best. We, we have so much of a casual Christianity because we create a casual atmosphere. The church feels casual. The dress is all casual. Everything is casual. Can I say this? That if the atmosphere is casual, that there will not be an acceptance of a Bible-strong message when everything is casual. So, so why do we do it? That's a thing that we would say is more tradition. I can't find a Bible verse that says, dress up for church and give God your best. But we are no better than the Pharisees. If we walk around with our ties and our dresses and say, well, we do it because it makes ourselves feel a little bit more, you know, superior in our religion because we dress up for church. If on the inside we're not serving God for the right reasons. I hope you're following me. God says, I don't want you to do it. I want you to be a good people along the way. How about with our music? We don't hold to a conservative music because we just don't want to change. and We want to be old-fashioned and we don't want to go with the whims of the modern era. Why? Because we want to preserve the holiness of God. And a lot of what we see with the modern music in our society, it's taking away from the holiness of God. Can I just say bluntly that modern Christian music, the tone and the style is extremely inappropriate. It's extremely inappropriate. I don't believe that that's anything to what we would find in Bible time is true worship and song and praise to the Lord. It sounds more like love music than it does praising God. And, and there's heart in music. There's passion in music. I understand that. But why do we do it? Just so we can say we're old-fashioned? Or because, no, we, we, want, we want to serve God in a holy way. We want to serve God in a way that is respectable. And we might say, well, I just don't believe that. I don't feel that way. Well, well, then you do what you want. But can I say this? We need to be mindful of how we worship God when He's the one that we're singing to. How about having Sunday night service or midweek service? Do we do it just because it's what we've always done and what we used to do? Hopefully it's because we have a hunger to learn more about God. I, I, I don't know about you, I can't do just one service a week. I, I think that God deserves more. Hey, if you want, in Bible times, we could go back to just having church every single day. We're not even up to the par and standard of what they were in Bible times. And so I'm just saying this, God says, we ought to have church so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
But again, we are wrong if we tout ourselves and say, well, we're still having Sunday night church, and we're still having midweek service. If we're coming with no hunger to learn, no decisions are being made, we're not allowing God to speak to our hearts, and the only good that's coming from it is we get to say, we have Sunday night church, and we have midweek service. God says, I'm glad that you want to do the right thing, but I want you to be a good people that does it for the right reasons. Verses 20 through 23 in chapter 8 speaks of his desire to see the glory of God come to Jerusalem in the millennium. And I like how verse 23 ends, for we have heard that God is with you. And then number four, we see the scenes of their promised deliverance. The scenes of their promised deliverance. Chapters 9 through 14 we could, take, we could take a lot of time to go through this part of the Bible. Uh, chapters 9 through 14, it starts off a little bit to the first coming of Christ, and then we see a lot of scenes and foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ. So there's a lot of prophecy in this. And at this time, all of this was prophecy. All of this had not happened yet. Now we, of course, can look back and we know that Jesus came and that he lived and that he died and that he rose again. Can I help you understand one thing? That when you read the Old Testament, the Jews were confused that Jesus was coming twice. And a big reason why they didn't accept the Messiah is that they thought he was coming to establish his kingdom and to bring peace and to, and to divide with a sword and to come in justice and in judgment and in fury. But we'll find in Zechariah 9.9 that that's not exactly the picture of how he came the first time. But there's so much truth and so much beauty in what's given in these next six chapters. This is the third section of the book of Zechariah. You have chapters 1 through 6 as a young man prophesying to the people, finish the temple, finish the work that you started. And then you have chapters 7 and 8, that question and answer about their service two years after that first section. And then this last part that deals a lot with the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. What's the reason that you think God gave them this message? The really, the truth is simple, and it was to give them hope. Here's a people that saw the enemy prospering on every side. They, they, they saw their land fall and be destroyed. They saw themselves fall under captivity under the Babylonian rule and then under the Persian rule. And in chapter 9, he'll, he'll talk about the Greeks that come as well. And all of this was this, to remind them that God had a plan. In the first part of this, he talks about Jesus, and the picture is this, that he comes as a coming king. We read it in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 is a foreshadowing of his first coming. If you look at it there with me once again, Zechariah 9, verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. A few things about this, this verse here. We see that he, he's a real king. This isn't Alexander the Great. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't any other king, a Julius Caesar or somebody else that would come. This is the king of kings. This is the king that would come and rule and reign. He is a just king. He is a righteous king. Man, you can read about that time from the captivities and how rulers came to power. There's a lot of 
backbiting, a lot of traitors, a lot of uh, murders, a, a lot of horrible pictures of how people came to their power. Well, this is a different king in that he is righteous, and he is pure, he is just. The Bible describes him as a saving king. I like this. He's coming for your good. And by the way, this wasn't the way that they expected, was it? They didn't expect him to come and to die on a cross and to give his life for their sakes. But he came to save them. Not from the Romans, but from hell and from their sins. Now here's what gives us a cue to what this passage is all about. The last part of verse 9 says this. I don't want you to miss this. It says there, that first word, he is lowly. He is lowly and riding upon an ass. This is a picture of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as he came into Jerusalem riding upon the back of a colt. And we find him being really the only time in Jesus' ministry where he received praise and worship. Do you understand that that picture was one of the greatest fulfillments of prophecies in all the Old Testament? Prophesied in Daniel 70 weeks and Daniel 9, 24 through 27, 173,884 days before that day to the day it was prophesied. Hundreds of years before, Daniel said, this is how it's going to happen. This is when he's going to come. This is when he's going to reveal and present himself. And that's exactly when he did it. It's an amazing thing to point back in the Bible and to be able to connect the dots and see how God worked all these things together as Daniel wrote these things down and said, God, I have no idea what this means, and I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how this is going to pan out. And to find Jesus coming exactly how he said that he would. We can look at the ministry of Christ and see his humility. We can see a lowly Savior who was meek and who was humble. He didn't come to receive praise. He didn't come to receive glory. He came to bear our sins. He came to bear our iniquities. He came and by His stripes, we are healed. Because that's the way that He came the first time. Well, can I tell you, friend, that it'll, it'll, God will change His tune when He comes the second time. And we find in verse number 10, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Well, we know that Christ's second coming deals with judgment and justice. And the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle, this is the foreshadowing of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, and we're going we're gonna to survey just through the end of this briefly. Chapter 10, we find that there was a cry for the people to be helped. And the picture of Christ here is as a rejected shepherd. Verse number three, it ends. Uh, verse number two, sorry. It says, because there was no shepherd. So Jesus is pictured here in Zechariah as a shepherd that was rejected. And God said, because you rejected me, I gave you the leaders of the land, and they're going to be your shepherds. It's kind of like in the Old Testament. You remember when the people saw the other nations and they said, well, they have a king. Why don't we have a king? Man, we're just different. And, you know, we, we don't get to have it fun like everybody else. And, and we, we, just, we, we, we just get the raw end of the deal. We want a king ourselves. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king, but you're going to regret it. And the first king of Israel, Saul, man, everything looked good in the beginning, but he became the thor a thorn in the side for the people of Israel, did he not? You find a couple of kings through Israel and Judah's history, for the most part, you find a lot of wickedness. And God says, you've rejected me as your leader? Okay. I'll give you over to them, and they will be your leaders. 
so they can be your shepherds. If you don't want me to be your master, fine. I'll let them be your master. Obviously, the people regretted it at that point. And so he's pictured as a, as a rejected shepherd. And then in the latter part of this book, we find the picture of the end times. And can I just say, as I was studying this, we don't talk enough about, and we don't think enough about, and we don't put as much of an emphasis as we should on the coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture, the second coming, and I think especially the millennium. I mean, we understand this, that there will be a thousand-year period where Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem after the tribulation. We will come back with him on white horses. We won't do a thing. He will judge the nations of the world. He will claim the victory, and he will set up his kingdom. I've always thought it this way, that the millennium is kind of like this. It's all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And it's what God first intended for the world that he created. And he says, we're going to make it right. And it's going to be pure. And it's going to be perfect. Can I say, it's going to be good. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible. There is much in the Bible that talks about the millennial reign of Christ. Why? That's a picture of God's restoration. He says, you've been scattered and you've been smitten. You've been hurt and you've been betrayed. You've turned from me and you failed to repent. But in the end, there will be this beautiful regathering of God's people at the millennial reign of Christ. There's much about Jerusalem that we find in the Bible. Uh, I believe we, we see this in, ver, in uh, chapter number 12. And you see Jerusalem mentioned here. We don't, we don't have time to, to go through all of this. But can I remind you this, that God commanded men to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God chose Jerusalem as a place where he'll set his name forever. He promised to bless and protect Jerusalem. He chose Jerusalem as a place where Jesus would suffer, where he would die, where he'd be buried, rise from the grave, and ascend unto heaven. In chapter 12, we see this chapter divided into a time of war and into a time of woe. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about how he'll uh, restore the people to, to realize God for who he really is. In other words, he says the Jews will finally understand who their true Messiah truly is. Chapter 13, there's a picture of a fountain. That fountain is a picture of blessing and prosperity to God's people in the end. He says he'll cut off idolatry. He'll remove the memory of sin. Amen. He'll expose the false prophets. It was a reminder that the Jews were the ones that pierced the hands of Christ, and he was the one that would restore them. And then in chapter 14, th there's something in here that I want you to see. The Bible talks about the day of the Lord that is coming. The Bible says that God, he will fight for you. Verse number three. Ch uh, chapter 14, verse number four, is a really important prophetical verse. The Bible says, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Now hold on a second. We know that this is referring to the second coming of Christ and not the rapture because the Bible says that God's feet will be planted here. When he comes in the rapture, he will not come to the earth. He will call us to be with him. It's at the second coming that we find every eye will see him, every tongue will confess, everybody will bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
So this is at the end, and the Bible says, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. If you go to Acts chapter number 1, we find Jesus ascending from the Mount of Olives back to heaven. And the angels, remember, they looked to the disciples and they said, Hey guys, hello, what are you looking at? Get to work. Don't just stand here. Do something. But a promise was given that Jesus would return, and here's the statement, in like manner. He'll come back to the same place he left. He'll come back in bodily form. He'll come back literally. It's not allegory or symbolism. Jesus will return. Does that not excite you? Do we not understand that we serve a God that is a God of detail and precision? He says, I'm leaving you. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Hey, get busy and get to work. But I'm coming back right here at an appointed time, and everything will be right. Everything will be fixed. I'll restore you unto me. That's the promise that God gave. Verse number five at the end of it, and here's the beauty of it, that last statement, and all the saints with thee. All the saints with thee. At the beginning of the tribulation, at the rapture, God calls us to be with him. And at the end of the second coming, we come back with him. Can I say that once we are with him, we're never away from him? And even though we don't see him physically today, the Bible says that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. In eternity, we'll be with God and we'll never be separated from him. Uh, in verses 20 and 21, just to give kind of some final thoughts with this. Again, there's a lot more we could look at, but verse 20 and 21, he finishes this out. and There's a lot that he goes over in chapter number 14. It says, In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. Now, this is something that was described for the priests upon uh, things that they wore, uh, the headpiece that they wore and whatnot. And God says, on the horses, there will be inscribed holiness unto the Lord. And this is a picture of future peace. Because horses had a purpose. And primarily that purpose was for battle. Horses would come with their chariots. And with, and at that day, all the battles are done. All the battles are won. All the battles are fought. There's no more strife. There's no more worry. There's no more sin. There's no more wickedness. There's no more wicked men that are prospering in the world. Holiness unto the Lord. Verse 21, Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. It's been said that God says here, even the common things will be important. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a plan in the end. And all that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Can I give you just a few thoughts to consider as we finish this book? Number one, that restoration is the product of repentance. Remember the beginning of the book? God says, here's what I have planned for you. And he takes dreams and visions, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and in a lot of imagery describes, here's the plan that I have for you. And in this big plan, it is amazing and wonderful. There's parts of it that you might even look at and say, I don't understand that, but it looks great. And it looks awesome. Kind of like when you pull up to a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas dinner and you say, I don't know how all this was made and I don't know how this was put together, but it looks awesome. And this is great. 
And that's kind of what the end times can be for God's people. But it goes back to chapter 1. What was the message in chapter 1? Your fathers have erred. It's time to turn back to God. It's time to get right. To remember where you've fallen and to get back on the path of restoration. Restoration is the product of repentance. Number two, blessing longs for obedience. Blessing longs for obedience. God says, I want to bless you, but I challenge you to return to being a holy and an obedient and a good people. And number three, in the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. And if you're saved tonight, that means you win too. And I hope that if there's anybody here tonight that you don't know Christ as your Savior, you realize you don't want to be on the wrong side of the equation when Jesus comes in the end. Your opinion on the matter will not change the truth of the matter. The millennium is a major focus in Zechariah and in the minor prophets. And God reminds his people that he has a plan and he will rule and he will reign. And these are glorious times to be saved and be a part of the people of God. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from Regency Baptist Church. We pray that God has used this message to stir your heart for the gospel's sake. To get information about our ministry or to get in contact with us, please visit us at regencybaptistchurch.org. If you were encouraged by this Bible message, share it with a friend, contact us, or tune in next time to the Regency Baptist Church Preaching Podcast.